I was in the sixth grade when I got a brand new bike. And I got a brand new bike because I broke the old one. <laughs> and I broke the old one because it was a hand-me-down from my cousin Jeff. He had gotten it brand new in the early 90s when neon colors were all the rage. So it was a jet black bike, good start, covered with splatter, bright neon pink paint with bright neon pink handlebars. Now, I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm just saying in the late 90s, a pre-adolescent boy riding a bike with the bright pink handlebars, it just set me up not necessarily for societal success in those days. <laughs> and so me and a buddy in my neighborhood, we built a makeshift ramp, and guess whose bike got volunteered to be the test subject? Ten minutes later, the front wheel was, was bent all the heck, and so I took it back to my parents' house, peacock proud, to show them my broken bike. So we went to the bike shop and got myself a new bike. This really worked out well for me. Um, had shocks on the front and back. It was a mountain bike. It had more speeds than I could count, and it was royal blue. Say amen, somebody. I could not wait to go to school on Monday morning and show it off to all my friends. I was going to be the coolest kid on campus. I slept in on Monday morning. Whoops. I was running late to school. Rode my bike as fast as I could. Got there after the bell had already rang. Everybody was inside in class. Okay, okay. Not a crisis. They'll see it after school. Then I'll be the coolest kid on campus. I'm waiting throughout the school day, counting down the milliseconds, 15 minutes until the end of the school day when that bell is going to go off, the intercom comes on. <laughs> Could Scott Gilliland come to the gym, please? Scott Gilliland to the gym, please. What is happening? So I go down to the gym as fast as I can. Turns out a couple weeks earlier I had missed, I'd been out of school, I had missed the uh, semi-annual weigh-in and lice check. I don't know if your schools did this growing up. <laughs> really awesome thing. What they would do is they'd take classes like cattle calls and parade them through the gym teacher's office where you would stand on this old school scale with the little sliding things back and forth in full view of your classmates. Really great for pre-adolescent students who feel awesome about their bodies in that moment. And um, uh, everybody's watching the whole time. Yeah, thank you, therapy. And, uh, and then they go combing through your hair afterwards to look for lice, like it's a National Geographic documentary. <laughs> and if they do find a single louse on your head, they very discreetly yell, we got one, and then they pull you out. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, it's just me, it's just me. There's no social shame in this, so can we please hurry this up? Please, please, please. While I'm in there, I hear the dude of the end of day bell, and I hear all the commotion of the students leaving. And so by the time I'm able to get out of there, there's nobody at the bike rack. Nobody except for my bully, who's walking out at the same time. And oh, thank you. <laughs> this is like a 90s sitcom now. You guys are doing great. And I'm kneeled down, and I'm undoing that little slinky style bike chain. My bully walks up, he goes, cool bike. I say, yeah, it's a cool bike. Super cool, dude, duh. He'll rock it. Take off the bike chain. As soon as the bike chain's off the bike, he hops on top of the, the seat and starts to ride away on my bike, right? I'm furious. I'm seeing red. Like, this is not how my Monday was supposed to go. And all I have in my hands is this slinky-style bike chain. 
so what do I do? I start to whip it around my head. Like Indiana Jones, y'all. And I sling it right in his direction. It wraps around his neck and pops him in the cheekbone just below the eye. And I yank as hard as I can and I pull him off of my bike. And I am flooded with two enormous emotions. One of which is overwhelming joy because I have just vanquished my bully with a slinky style bike chain. And I am feeling like Captain Flippin' America, right? <laughs> and the other emotion is overwhelming fear because I have just used my bike chain to pull my bully off of my bike. He's much bigger than me, and I have a quicker tongue, but he's much bigger than me, and he takes my bike, and he rides it across the field, and he throws it over the fence into the neighbor's yard. He's probably wondering, what in the heck is happening? A bike just showed up in my backyard. And at that moment, I kid you not, every single administrator of my school walks out to see this commotion. We both were in school suspension for a few days as a result of that, so no one got to see my bike that week. I tell that story, I did get the bike back, thank you for asking. Um, I tell that story, it's, it's a funny story. Um, I've told that story many times, as you can probably tell. Uh, I know where the laughs are supposed to come. I know where the sympathy is supposed to come. I know how to tell it in a way where I'm the hero, right? And everybody's cheering for me along the way. Even though what you objectively just heard was about a sixth grader potentially like dismembering another child, like he could have lost an eye, right? Violent. Um, but I know how to tell that story. It's not the full story. Um, not, not even close. How could it be? Um, we have a way of telling stories about ourselves and about others that are not always fully true. And, and where someone's the hero and someone's the villain. Where uh, our hatred is justified. And, and where violence seems like a really good thing. To even something to be celebrated. Um, and I wonder how God can lead us to tell stories differently, to tell stories about others and stories about ourselves differently. Because I feel like we could be a lot more loving and a lot more gracious, and as Amy just sang a moment ago, a lot more gentle with others and with ourselves. So, so Jesus is, is addressing this very thing in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. If you want to follow along there, Luke 6, 27. Um, it's, it's in the form of this sermon he's preaching. In Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, we call it the Sermon on the Plain. And he's going to talk about how we see others and also how we see ourselves, in a way. He's going to talk about loving enemies. And then later, he's going to talk about judgment. And he's going to talk about splinters and logs. And, and so I want you to stay with me today as, as we sort of weave our way through these teachings in the midst of my own stories, um, and maybe learn a, a new way to tell stories about ourselves, about others, a better way. So he begins, he says, but I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies. The, the Greek there really is not even the word for enemies, it just means love the people that y'all hate. And all the yous that are coming up are plural yous, so hear y'all. This is the gospel according to Texas Jesus, right? I say to y'all who are willing to hear, love y'all's enemies. Love those people that y'all hate. Do good to those who hate y'all. Bless those who curse y'all. Pray for those who mistreat y'all. If someone slaps y'all on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand 
your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. Because if you love those who love you, why should you be commended, he says. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be paid back in full. Instead, love those people that you hate. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. You'll be acting the way of the way children of the most high act for He's kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Be compassionate just as your capital F father is compassionate. We're going to pause there for now. So so Jesus is confronting this this view of what law and justice looked like in, in those days. And not just in those days, but for you know, years and years and generations leading up to it. This is uh, what in Latin was known as the lex talionis, or the, the law of retribution. This goes back to um, the Babylonian Empire and the, the Hammurabi's Code. It, it was codified in the Hebrew law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and in Numbers. It, it was codified in Roman law as, as lex uh, talionis. It was this idea that when, when a wrong is done, it has to be met with punishment that is an equal measure, right? And we still practice this today. It's why we even have the death penalty in many places in this country because we think an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. That's the way that law and justice work. And Jesus is saying, oh, don't you know there's a different way? Because play that out, that, that law of retribution, when you do eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, everybody wakes up every day believing they are right and everybody wakes up every day believing they are wronged and so that creates this endless cycle loop where people end up with eyes plucked and teeth missing and dead in the end because the law of retribution has no end it has no end because what you think is justice somebody else is going to think is injustice and then they're going to say well now i get to slap you back but wait you slapped me first no i didn't yes you did and it just becomes crazy and jesus saying how do we disrupt this How do we disrupt this? So when somebody does something wrong to you, Jesus isn't saying suddenly get passive. He's not saying become a doormat. He's he's saying don't resist with violence. The Greek there that he uses is antisthenai. He's saying don't, don't use violence to resist violence. When somebody is violent with you, choose a different kind of resistance. Choose a resistance of love. And it sounds kind of foolish at first. When he says when somebody slaps you, turn your other cheek to them. That would have been thought as incredibly foolish. It sounds foolish today. Somebody takes your coat from you, give them your shirt too, right? When somebody wants anything, just offer it freely to them. And, and maybe what Jesus is trying to say is that when you, when you live with that kind of love or that kind of grace where you're doing things that even look outwardly foolish to people, you're disrupting a system and a cycle of violence, and, and maybe that person does or maybe they don't, Think critically for a moment and say, huh, does it have to be this way? Because the story that we tell ourselves about the people that we hate is one where we're always the hero, we're, we're always the victim, we're never the villain, but that's never really true, right? Everybody's always the hero of their own story. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to be a villain today. Well, maybe a couple people do, I don't know. But most people do not wake up thinking, I can't wait to be a villain today. 
Jesus is saying we've got to disrupt our story so that we can cause ourselves and others to ask the, the vital questions about, does it have to be this way? It's when I tell that story about the bike lock, Jesus is saying, Scott, could you disrupt that story for a moment to consider why, in fact, your bully was out there at the same time as you? It wasn't because he was being kept after for a weigh-in and for a life check. It's because he got kept after school almost every day because he struggled to keep up in class, and as a result, he acted out. So teachers kept him all the time. Scott, do you want to disrupt your story for a moment and, and wonder, why do you only call him the bully? Well, because it's easier to get you guys to laugh at him when I don't give him a name, right? Scott, do you want to disrupt your story for a moment and, and wonder why it was that he maybe didn't like you all that much? And this is the part I don't like to tell, probably because I told jokes at his expense for like three years. Because I was really smart and really clever, and when you're a kid, you can be really mean, unfortunately, to get a laugh. Turns out you can do that as an adult, too. Scott, do you want to disrupt your story for a moment to consider why it was he even thought your bike was cool to look at? And and maybe it's because in those days, I didn't realize that even with my thoroughly middle-class family, you know, we had privileges that others didn't. And he was just as excited to see a new bike because he never had one either. But all I could see was a, a bully. All I could see was an enemy. See, the law of retribution tells a painfully well-known story, but, but when we allow grace to change us, when we allow grace to change our response then it invites imagination into the story. Because retribution just does this and this and this and this and this and this and this. But when we disrupt that, when we allow God to disrupt us, and we allow ourselves to see the people that we hate not as enemies, but instead as neighbors, maybe the story could turn out differently. Maybe it doesn't. Jesus is clear. This is not karma. We are not doing good to get good. That, that goes back to the law of retribution. Whatever you do is paid back to you, right? Maybe you do good and you get slapped in the other cheek as well. That was louder than I intended it to be. <laughs> For effect. But no, really, maybe you get slapped twice as a result. The, the, the law of love is not committed to working in every single moment. The law of love is committed to working in the end. Because the law of retribution might feel really good at moment to moment, but in the end, it fails us every time. The law of love says, I might not win every moment, but I do trust that love will win in the end. We with me? So Jesus continues on to, to go in his teaching, and he says, don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall into your lap. Now, he's talking about in a spiritual sense, right? He's talking about the relationship that we have with God. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return and so then jesus goes on to tell them a riddle it says a blind person cannot lead another blind person right won't they both fall into a ditch disciples aren't greater than their teacher but whoever is fully prepared will be like their teacher why do you see the splinter in your sibling's eye but you don't notice the log in your own eye how can you say to your sibling sibling let me take the splinter out of your eye when you don't see the log in your own eye you deceive yourselves first take that log out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your sibling's eye you know we're really good at noticing other people's splinters aren't we maybe that's just me maybe just i'm just a judgmental jerk and i'm in a room with really good christians but i i, I think we're really good at noticing other people's splinters 
I know I was really good at this when I was an adolescent in a really specific way. And I'm going to um, talk to you a little bit about, about my own personal story. So recently I was with our AUMC students addressing what we call the clobber passages. Maybe you have or have not heard that term. It's the scripture verses, the handful that get used over and over again that are weaponized against LGBTQ folks. We were talking about uh, these scriptures, helping to understand them perhaps in a different way. And I was honest with them, and I'll be honest with you, that I've not always held the same inclusive theology that I do today. And it's all about story. So I won't share the whole thing, because quite frankly, it's way too long, and we have no alcohol in this room. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and honestly, there, there's, so, there's so much to it, and not all of the story is mine to tell. But I'll tell you the part that is mine to tell. Um, and I just need you to trust that I'm being pretty vulnerable up here. Uh, so... When I was in the, uh, growing up, I told you my cousin, I got his hand-me-down bike, right? There's a reason for that. It's because my cousins lived a mile away from me growing up, Jeff and Christy. Jeff was three years older than me. I thought he was Superman. And Christy was six months younger than me, which I reminded her of constantly. Um, six months younger, I'm older. Uh, and we were like siblings growing up, a mile apart. And, and they were my, not just my brother and sister, they were my best friends. I didn't have a best friend growing up because I had them. Why would I need a best friend, right? I spent every weekend with them. I spent as many weeknights as I could with them. I knew the route to their house like the back of my hand. And then in the third grade, my, my aunt and uncle got divorced. I didn't know the reasons then. Um, I wouldn't learn those until about that same year that I got the new bike. And I won't go into the nitty-gritty details, but sexuality was at the root of that story. Um, and so uh, this, uh, my former uncle kind of left my life, and, and my aunt uh, did her best to raise my cousins. But then in the seventh grade, um, when I was in the seventh grade, uh, she decided that she needed to move to Mississippi to be closer to my grandparents, to her parents. And so that same summer that my cousin Christy was supposed to come to middle school with me for the first time we were going to go to school together. My sister was going to be at my same school. I was so excited. My best friend was going to be in the cafeteria with me at lunchtime. Suddenly she was two states away. And I didn't have any, I was like super, um, what's the word, uh, painfully awkward. Um, and I didn't know how to make really close friendships because I'd never had to before. I felt really isolated and really alone. I got pretty depressed, and my grades started slipping, and I just got angry. And I didn't know how to turn that anger towards, like, what was really happening, which was, like, dealing with the fact that I felt abandoned, and I felt like my own family had gotten a divorce, even though my nuclear family hadn't. Um, so I decided to direct that anger at the only thing I could, and that was this, like, nameless, faceless, at this point, uh, person that used to be in my life. Uh, who I could name as my enemy, the person that I hate. And the one thing that I knew about them, even though I didn't know the whole story, was, was that sexuality was part of it. And so I said, ah, I see the splinter. And I started to see splinters all around me. And I got really good at, at judging people for splinters in their eyes. And it was helpful that the culture I was in was so incredibly homophobic, unlike today where we've got it all figured out. Um... So you couple that with, with Christianity, and you know, yeah, the Bible's clear, right? The Bible's clear, right? And, um, and then I started to know people personally that I thought had that splinter in their eye, people with sexualities that were different than mine, and, and I thought, man, I actually kind of like them. Well, this makes it harder. What does the Bible actually say? 
because I, I, I hear Jesus telling me not to judge, and I, and I hear Jesus calling me to be in relationship with people and to see them as a neighbor. And so I decide, let me go back and look at that Bible. Let me look at those verses that are so clear. Let me look at that, that uh, lex talionis, that, that law of retribution that also says really lovely things like stone young women and girls who are found to be impure and bash babies against rocks and perpetuate endless cycles of violence. It's all throughout Leviticus and Numbers if you want to read it. I don't know why you'd want to, but I did. And then I kept reading. I said, wow, that's really, that's really awful. I don't, I don't, that doesn't seem like a law that I'd want to live by. Huh, that makes those verses sound a little bit different. Then I, I kept reading, I kept reading, um, because what I realized was I had this huge log in my eye. And I was trying to pull it out, and it was really hard. You know, logs get really wedged in there, don't they? Um, and I kept reading in the New Testament because, you know, darn it, there's a couple of verses there that people love to bring up. But as I read the Gospels, it's crazy. When you actually read the Bible, there's some pretty good stuff in there. <laughs> I read the Gospels, and I saw what Jesus was saying about faith and about life. And, and, and offering a, a window into what righteousness and justice and holiness look like. And the way that Jesus connects both faith and actions. That was this thing that I saw over and over again. I saw it in the way that Jesus talked about the people who inherit the kingdom of God when Jesus says that it's those who feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty and visit those in prison. It's, it's present when James is writing in his letter and saying that faith without works is dead. It's, it's present when Jesus is saying, you'll know who my disciples are by the way that they love one another. I began to realize that there was this connection between the way that we live and the faith that we have that was suddenly really liberating for me. I could feel that log slowly slipping out. And really the verse that saved my faith and saved my life and, and is a reason why I love scripture so much, it comes here towards the end of Jesus' teaching that I've been reading. He says, a good, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit, nor does a bad tree produce good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. People don't gather figs from thorny plants, nor do they pick grapes from prickly bushes. A good person produces good from the good treasury of the inner self, while an evil person produces evil from the evil treasury of the inner self. The inner self overflows with words that are spoken. You know a tree by its fruit. It's a, it's a beautiful image and distillation of what I think Jesus is trying to communicate about the relationship between faith and works. And it saved my faith. Because what it did was it invited me not to stand from afar and to see splinters. Not to stand from afar and say, ah, my enemies or the hated ones. But instead, to get that God-forsaken log out of my eye and draw in close and look closely to see people and to look for fruit. And suddenly I was seeing people in my life who were in committed relationships and, and those relationships were making each of them better people. And I saw families raising beautiful children in households that I know, I know my cousin wish he could have been in. I see people who are expressing Christian love and values way better than my judgmental bike lock wielding keister does. And suddenly God was changing that story, not just for me, but for the way that I also saw the people around me. 
And you know what's crazy is that when Jesus says, take the log out of your eye before you look for splinters, there's two things that I know are true. Number one is it feels really good getting a log out of your eye. It does. It feels really good getting a log out of your eye. Do you know how angry? Do you know how, like, self-loathing I was in junior high? All that anger, now that's karma. All that anger I was trying to send beyond me, it was just coming right back. All that hatred I was trying to send beyond me, it was coming right back. Getting that log out of my eye was liberating. Suddenly, I wasn't serving a God of judgment anymore. I was serving a God of grace. Oh, thank you, Jesus. The other thing I know that's true is once you do get that log out of your eye, you'd be amazed at how much the splinters can disappear. And this is a little corny to say, but maybe you stop seeing splinters and maybe you start seeing sparkles. <laughs> that's pretty cheesy. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it is true. When you've got a log stuck in your eye, maybe all you can see is splinters. Because all you've got is a log blocking your view. I don't even know how that works, but... When you get it out of your eye, you begin to see other people not as the hated, not as the splinter-filled, but as the beloved, the neighbor, the child, the sibling, the friend. That's a liberating way to see others, and it becomes a liberating way to see yourself. My friends, when a living person confronts what we think we know about a living text, whether that's the law of retribution or a clobber passage, or any number of things that we might think we believe. When a living person confronts what we think we know, the Christ-like move is to lean into the living person, to look closer, to see what fruit is being born, to humble yourself to a position that maybe you could be moved and you could be changed. Maybe your story could be rewritten. Maybe the way that you're writing other people's stories could be rewritten as well. Walking with God means inviting the story that we tell ourselves about others and about ourselves to be disrupted. Disrupted with the grace of God, disrupted with the law of love, and disrupted in a way that changes us for good. I'm a living testimony to what this kind of work can look like, and I'm not done. I'm imperfect, and I love myself enough to know that that's okay. I'm grateful for the people in my life that have allowed me to walk into a lot of love. I'm grateful for the people who embody the teachings of Jesus and allow that cycle of violence and loathing and hatred to cease. I hope we can all tell better stories. I hope we can invite God to walk alongside us and to disrupt us in that holy and powerful way. The law of love. May it ever be so. Amen.